Thank you all for coming. Um, my name is Doug Letterman. I'm editor of Inside Higher Ed. Um, I want to welcome you to Cato for today's session, Does Public Higher Ed Funding Drive Economic Growth? Um, contrary to the philosophy of the host, whose motto is individual, liberty, free markets, and peace, I must ask those of you in the, our audience here to turn in Washington to turn off your cell phones and other noise-emitting devices. Uh, and those of you who are watching via the Internet, however, uh, you can do as you darn well please. Um, uh, the, today we gather to talk about the wisdom of public investment in higher ed and higher education with the federal government seemingly on the precipice of a mammoth investment in higher education and, and virtually everything else, we should say, um, in an effort to stimulate the economy. Um, that makes very timely the questions that are on our agenda today. Um, should the government see spending aimed at uh, ensuring access to college, training workers, and promoting academic research as prudent and productive? Um, I think in the years ahead, um, another important set of questions is going to be probably even more relevant than those questions that we're going to talk about today, and I hope we'll at least have a chance to, to touch on these uh, in our conversation today. Um, while it's clear at this particular moment that the federal government, citing economic distress, is planning a major boost in spending on education and other public purposes – as a general rule, I think we're on the verge of a period in which such, such investments are unlikely to be the norm. Um, many states have enormous structural deficits that will largely preclude, I would dare say, heavy new spending on higher education and some other uh, social purposes. And the federal government, after its initial binge that we're likely to see in the coming weeks and months, is likely to find itself without the wherewithal to significantly ratchet up its investments. Uh, if I'm right about that, the questions are likely to shift from should the government spend more on higher education to how are governments now spending money for higher education and should they be looking for ways to do it more efficiently and effectively? Is money going to the right institutions? Is it going for the right purposes? And is it getting the right results? I think those are the questions that we're starting to see asked more regularly in state houses around the country and in Congress and that are likely to dominate public policy in the months and years ahead. Um, for now, though, let's turn to the issues at hand today. Uh, we're going to hear from three uh, prominent and, and thoughtful people. Uh, first is George Leaf, who's the Vice President for Research for the John William Pope Center for Higher Education Policy. Uh, he holds a Bachelor of Arts uh, degree from Carroll College in Wisconsin and a, doc and a law degree from a Duke University School of Law. Next will be Neil McCluskey, who's the Associate Director of Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. Um, and lastly is going to be Barmak Nasirian, who's the Associate Executive Director of the National of the sorry the American Association of Collegiate Registrars and Admission Officers. Um, and uh, that's uh, we're going to turn to Neil now. Thanks very much. I'm sorry. I turn it to George. Well, thank you very much, Doug. And good afternoon to all of you here. I'm delighted to have a chance to be with you to talk about the connection between higher education and economic growth, which is a subject I've been thinking about for many years. And I'll throw my conclusion out on the table right off the bat. I think there's only a very weak connection between higher education and economic growth. Now, since we're here in Cato's Hayek Auditorium, it seems particularly appropriate to begin with the following observation. Economic growth is one of those happy byproducts of the spontaneous order of a free society. It occurs to the maximum extent when people are at liberty to pursue their own goals and desires. 
including working, saving, investing, innovating, forming businesses, acquiring resources, and, of course, learning. Now, some learning takes place in formal academic settings like college classrooms, but much more of it takes place elsewhere. We ought to keep in mind that the people who figured out how to turn electricity into light, how to make heavier-than-air things fly, and how to mass-produce automobiles never went to college. Now, although learning can be an important element in economic growth, the government can no more boost economic growth by putting increasing numbers of students through college than it could by, say, artificially lowering interest rates, subsidizing the use of steel, or trying to improve any other component of economic growth. I believe that all such interventions simply misallocate resources. Now, in explaining how I came to this conclusion, let me begin with a bit of personal history. Nearly 30 years ago, I began a teaching career at a small and decidedly non-selective college in the Midwest. My first few weeks of teaching were a shock. Now, as an undergraduate back in the early 70s, I had known a lot of students who were happy to get by with a minimum of effort, but I had never encountered anyone with as little preparation and as little interest in education as most of the students that I had. Years later, I came across a good label for such students, disengaged. Many of them had reading and writing skills at about the sixth grade level, or at least what would have been sixth grade back when I was there. They generally put little or no effort into their assignments, but nevertheless expected good grades. Now, they weren't interested in analytical thought, but like just to be told the main point. And most of them were in college just for two reasons, because it was a lot of fun to be had on a college campus and because it was presumed that without a degree, you would never get a good job. Now, I also learned something about college administrators. Despite paying lip service to high academic standards and academic excellence, keeping the students content trumped everything else. Professors who made the student customers unhappy with high expectations or low grades uh, were pressured to make their courses more user-friendly. Now, that was back in the 1980s. Things have gotten much worse since then. For a large percentage of young Americans, college really isn't higher education. It is simply longer education. At many schools, academic standards are abysmally low. Students can avoid demanding courses if they choose to, and many of them do. Especially at large research universities, what Professor Murray Sperber calls the faculty-student non-aggression pact prevails, namely... The professor doesn't require much from the students, and one of them would have to try hard to get anything less than a C. But in return, the professor puts little effort into the teaching in order to save time for what's really important to him, research. Now, of course, there are still students who seek out tough classes taught by demanding professors and work like mad to master the material, but many more of them just cruise through college enjoying four or five years of fun with occasional interruptions for some studying, writing or pasting together of papers, and going to class. A good indicator of trends here is the National Association, uh, National Assessment of Adult Literacy. Uh, the most recent survey found that just 31% of college graduates could manage a score of proficient uh, in prose literacy, and that's a bar which isn't even set terribly high. In the 1992 national assessment, that figure had been 40%, showing considerable slippage in academic standards, I believe. And if you look at the other end, we find that fully 17% of college graduates were only at the basic level of literacy. 
Now, a few years ago, I had an intern working for me. He was a very sharp economics major at the University of North Carolina. And one day he remarked, people here would be amazed if they knew how easy it is to graduate from Chapel Hill without learning anything. Now, perhaps there's some hyperbole there, but his point was well taken. Now, while the educational value of a college degree has been falling for the most part, it has become much, much more expensive. The higher education industry has taken advantage of the fact that most Americans and almost all politicians are unable to resist anything that purports to be about education. Uh, Recently, for example, the higher ed establishment put out a request to the incoming administration for a 5% cut of any economic stimulus spending for campus construction projects, and I doubt that it will come away empty-handed. Now, as I see it, we're spending more and more on higher education, but many who graduate from college these days have an education in name only. What they have is simply a credential, a point to which I'll come back shortly. This credentialing process, far from enhancing economic growth, absorbs resources that should be better put to uses elsewhere in the economy. Now, working for a higher education think tank, I often come across reports such as the recent Measuring Up 2008 report published by the National Center for Public Policy in Higher Education. That report and many others like it extol our higher education system and proclaim that there is some national imperative to raise our educational attainment level. Now, when I read such reports, I groan. Higher education in the United States has already been greatly oversold. We're kind of in the same position as a farmer who's over-fertilized his fields but is told by the fertilizer salesman, well, you've got to add more because that's what all the other farmers are doing. Now, how could people be so wrong? Well, it's because the conventional wisdom about higher education is mostly wrong. And I'd like to discuss three key components of that supposed wisdom. First, allegedly, we need to increase college attendance and graduation rates because more and more jobs require a college education. Outgoing Education Secretary Margaret Spellings used to say that in many of her speeches. The implication is that most of the work in the economy is becoming more and more difficult and demanding so that workers just won't be able to cope with it unless they've been to college. Now, the truth is quite a bit different. It isn't that work now requires a college education, but rather that more and more employers require that applicants have a college degree. That is to say, employers have increasingly taken to using college credentials as a screening device. With a glut of college graduates in the labor market, the reasoning goes, why bother interviewing those who haven't gone to college? They're probably less reliable and harder to train. Now, decades ago, having earned a college degree was a mark of distinction, but today, not having one is a stigma that simply gets an individual shut out from many jobs he could easily learn to do. Now, in their uh, 2005 book, Saving Education in the Age of Money, Harvard professors James Engel and Anthony Dangerfield really nailed this point, writing, I quote, The United States has become the most rigidly credentialized society in the world. A BA is required for jobs that by no stretch of imagination need two years full-time training, let alone four. Now, of course, there are some entry-level jobs that do call for serious post-secondary study, like engineering. But there aren't really very many of those jobs that demand advanced academic preparation, and that's a good thing because relatively few students want to do the difficult work necessary in college to master demanding fields, uh, especially where there are right and wrong answers. Now, 
why that is the case would take us off into a wholly new area of our failings in K-12, and I'm not going to do that, but I will suggest you read J. Martin Rochester's book, Class Warfare, or Saul Stern's book, Breaking Free, to get into that field. Now, the second component of the uh, conventional wisdom that is so wrong is that the economy supposedly benefits if we put more people through college because college graduates earn more money. So if we want higher incomes, we can achieve that just by having more access to college. Now, it's undeniably true that on average, people who have been to college earn more than people who haven't. That comparison, however, is quite meaningless. Naturally, the college-educated group, con containing nearly all of our sharpest and most ambitious people, will have higher, higher earnings than the non-college group. But it's illogical to assume that just taking a person who would not have otherwise gone to college, processing through to a BA degree, is automatically going to enhance his earning capacity. Instead of looking at these average earning figures, it makes much more sense to look at people at the margin. Consider a hypothetical high school senior who has so-so grades and a so-so SAT score. He could get into some lower-tier school and pursue a degree in some undemanding major. And with that degree, he'd probably have a very good shot at, oh, maybe a management trainee job with Target stores. Not a really good return on investment. On the other hand, the same senior might decide to pursue training in uh, precision machining, a field where there's a shortage of workers. If he does so, he'll start earning money sooner, probably earn quite a bit more. He'll have greater job security and no college debts. There are a lot of young people like that for whom a college degree is simply folly. Now, getting a college degree is no guarantee of elevated income. In fact, we have such a large number of college graduates these days that they're spilling over into jobs that call for no educational credentials whatsoever. The Bureau of Labor Statistics keeps track of educational level of people in a huge array of jobs. And the figures show that substantial numbers of college graduates are now found working in jobs like aerobics instructors, travel agents, retail sales supervisors, similar jobs, pushing more young people into college, most of whom are going to be drawn from the multitudes of uh, academically disinterested students, uh, will only make that situation worse. Now, the third component of the conventional wisdom is that we must not fall behind other nations in regard to our educational attainment level. The higher ed establishment likes to point out that several other countries now surpass the U.S. in the percentage of younger people who have college degrees, for instance, Canada, Japan, and Belgium. We're told that this means we are losing our educational advantage, and we're supposed to conclude from this that bad things will happen to our economy unless we catch up and get back where we belong in first place. Now, this is really chicken little stuff. If increased formal education makes sense in other countries and enables them to become more productive, that doesn't do us any harm. As I've argued, the U.S. is already oversaturated with college graduates, and there is no point in trying to keep up with the international Joneses in this respect. This isn't a race, and we don't have to be first. British professor Alison Wolfe, in her excellent book, Does Education Matter?, wrote, and I quote, Two naive beliefs have a distorting influence, the belief that there is a simple, direct relationship between the amount of education in a society and its future growth rate, and the belief that governments can fine-tune education expenditures to maximize that rate of growth. Neither is correct. She points to examples of countries that have gone flat out to try to increase educational levels and had 
virtually no economic benefit from it, like Britain, and other countries that have not pushed higher education have remarkably good economies, Switzerland being a good case. Now, I agree with Professor Wolf. Higher education is not an elixir for economic growth. It does not ensure that students will acquire advanced skills. It does not ensure that they will have good-paying jobs. Like everything else, there's an optimal point for spending on higher education, and I think it's clear that we're already past that point. How would we know where that point is? In contrast with the central planning mentality of the higher education establishment, which looks at these aggregate statistics and says, oh, we need more students in college, I maintain we should just leave this to the invisible hand of the marketplace. If an individual concludes that he'd benefit from additional education, he has lots of ways to do that. And if a company concludes it needs more workers with specific skills, it can provide inducements for current or prospective workers to take the necessary courses. Blunderbuss government programs, in contrast, are sure to be inefficient. So to conclude, I'll leave you with this thought. A lot of people believe that the reason America is such a prosperous country is because we have invested so much in education for our people. I maintain that the truth is about the exact reverse of that. Only a really prosperous country could afford to have an education system that costs as much and delivers as little as ours does. Thank you. Thank you, George. Neil? I want to thank everyone uh, for coming out. Now, there's, I, I make things difficult. Generally, at Cato, we don't like people to use PowerPoint because it's kind of a pain. But I had to for this, so just wait one second. It should all fire up. Uh, but, again, I want to thank everyone for coming. I want to thank all of our panelists. Uh, and my name, again, is Neil McCluskey. I'm the Associate Director uh, at the Center for Educational Freedom here at Cato. And, ah, there it is. Now, if there are any technical difficulties, it's because I don't know how to work this little thing too well. But, but let's see what happens. Of course, our, our subject today is whether or not public higher ed funding drives economic growth. What I want to focus on, though, is in particular, what have we actually spent? What's the reality of what we've spent? What do we get for it? Because that's really the key. You know, we, we believe, and I think it, it's fairly true or, or well documented, that people need education, and education does help drive economic growth, but you can go beyond what's necessary to spending too much. So let's look at that side of the equation. And that didn't work, so I'm going to try this. Okay. Uh, a major contention of those who want greater investment, and that's always the term that's used, is investment in higher ed. Uh, what they argue is that public funding, for one thing, has been severely cut. This is heard many times. You can read it in newspaper accounts, lots of different things. Is that true? Well, here's just a few examples. The National Association of State Universities and Land-Grant Colleges, which is uh, I won't even try and read their, their acronym, but they recently said that public university tuition has increased because real per-student appropriations have declined. We're going to test out this mechanism here and see if I'm just doing it. Oh, I forgot to turn it on. <laughs> see, and I'm, I'm college-educated. <laughs> um, here's another example from a recent report. Uh, this comes from uh, this uh, one second. I always forget this acronym, had to write it down. This is the Center for Studies in Higher Education. And they had, again, a November report that came out that said, after a long period of declining public financing for higher education on a per-student basis, most public universities and colleges have had little room to yet again do more with less. So our question is, is that accurate? Have we really had a cut in spending? 
The answer is barely at best. I mean, you really have to stretch to say there's been a cut. Now, this, uh, this, table, or, or this chart comes from the state higher education executive officers, and every year they put out a state higher education funding uh, report. And it, I'm going to break this down into much more manageable bites. But basically what it shows is the bottom part is state spending per full-time equivalent student, state and local spending. And the top is the amount of revenue that public colleges and universities get through tuition. And this is a net gain, so it doesn't include uh, the amount that students get in state, state paid for aid. So let's break it down so it's easier to deal with. This is just those bottom parts. This is what the, the state and local governments have spent on a national basis uh, per student. And you can see that, yes, it goes up and down, but generally it's almost a completely flat trend. In fact, I, I have a trend line going across the top. And you can see that the trend is that you lose about $4 per, per student over the overall 25-year overall period. Essentially, that means it's been flat. But, of course, you see sort of the roller coaster motion that, that goes along with the business cycle. But it is incorrect to in any way say that there have been drastic cuts to spending, uh, public spending on higher ed. Now you see the tuition revenue per full-time equivalent student. Now you see a slightly different trend line. You certainly cannot say that state colleges and universities, at least nationally, have had to continue to raise um, tuition costs in order to make up for lost public revenue. They've lost about $4 a year on the, the overall 25-year trend, but they've raised tuition and fee revenue, $72. Let's look at a couple of states. Now, I start with Maryland because I just wrote uh, an, an op-ed, which I think was available outside, uh, that's responding to this Bohannon Commission that just recently said the state of Maryland should spend $760 million more million over 10 years for public higher education to remain competitive economically. And I wrote, as you'll know, certainly when I'm done here, I said that maybe that's not the best way to improve your, your state economy. And the Baltimore Sun, responding to the same commission, said, historically, Maryland schools have lacked adequate state support and depended too much on relatively high tuition rates. Well, here is the, the SHEO chart for Maryland. And again, you see fluctuations from year to year. But for 25 years, it looks to be essentially flat although you have some pretty big increases toward the most recent seven or eight years. You'll also notice that there are pretty big increases in the amount of revenue that comes from tuition. And I should point out that the red line is enrollment, and I'll talk a little bit about the impact of enrollment in a second. So I broke this down, just like I did for the national data. Here are those bottom bars. You'll see that per-pupil expenditures on the 25-year trend line have gone up about $40 per pupil. In other words, there hasn't been a cut. It's also notable that Maryland is pretty much in line with the national average data or average expenditure. And here is that tuition. Now, it's true. It does appear that they've, they've depended more and more, or at least taken more and more money in through tuition. So the trend line you see about 168, you know, round up to $170 is generally increased per year on the trend line. So again, it seems the state of Maryland has not had penurious state spending on their college and universities. And now I have to include California because they're the biggest state and because they seem to be in a perpetual budget disaster. And so this is from uh, an L.A. Daily News story about a recent report. It says, over the last three decades, the state's investment in public higher education has dropped 40 percent. It's a collapse, folks, said Tom Mortensen, author of the report, California at the Edge of a Cliff, the Failure to Invest in Public Higher Education 
is crushing the economy and crippling our kids' futures. Now, if that is not a painful title, I don't know what it is. I mean, I've written some doozies that are way over the top, but nothing like that. Um, this is a staggering commentary on this state's commitment to higher education. Now, you've got to really break out the data. I, I kind of wondered, well, how did he get the 40% figure? What he did was said, well, for every $1,000 of income a state taxpayer has, we've reduced the amount that goes to higher education. Huh. The report didn't appear to adjust for inflation over 30 years, already a problem, and it didn't adjust for increases in income even if you had increased for inflation. So it makes me wonder, well, is there actually, has there been a reduction in per-pupil expenditures? Here again is the SHEO data, and again, if you look, it doesn't look like there's been an overall reduction. And here's broken out public expenditure, state and local expenditure per pupil. Again, the trend line is essentially flat, though it has a slight uptick. So no, there hasn't been a drastic cut in expenditure per pupil. And if you look at the amount of revenue taken in by tuition, you see a, a $20 gain roughly each year, which is not huge. I mean, this isn't terrible, but it certainly shows that it's not making up for some loss in, in revenue from state and uh, local taxpayers. And then there's, of course, a whole other side to this. When we talk about per-pupil expenditure, that's important, so we know what the impacts are on an individual student. But we have to talk about the cost to the entire economy if we want to talk about economic growth. So you need to look at the total increase in tax revenue that goes to the schools. And what's important is enrollment has grown during this time. So we're spending essentially flat per student, but with growing enrollment. So this is the... Um, the amount expended by state and local taxpayers uh, over, again, 25 years um, in total. And this is in millions of dollars, so you can see that you have almost a billion-dollar increase on the trend line each year in total expenditure. We're going from about a little over $40 billion in 1982 to uh, just about $70 billion in uh, 19, or 2007. That is a very significant increase in the actual tax burden from higher ed. So, here's a question. We've seen that declining support for colleges does not create a need to raise tuition fees because there hasn't been that decline in support. What explains the big price increase? The answer is that, at least in part, it's that students can pay for these increases. And that is thanks, in large part, to ever-growing public and other third-party dollars. Again, we have a chart for this. This, uh, this takes a look at, unfortunately, I don't have 25 years of data, so we have 17 years of data in federal loan aid per full-time equivalent student and grant aid per full-time equivalent student. We should note the grant aid, though, includes institutional aid. So this isn't all uh, money that comes from government, but most or the majority does. And you can see that you have on both lines about $118 per year on the trend line. Uh, and it should also be noted that when we looked at the previous slide, which I won't repeat here, that had um, the amount of revenue from tuition fees, this is about... Uh, well, a little less than doubling it. That was about $70. This is about, right, round up to $120. And importantly, that revenue, though, is net, minus any state grants. So these things aren't totally comparable. But this shows that, or at least indicates strongly, that tuition is able to go up because people can pay for it. I should also note that this includes private tuition, or private schools' tuition, not all public. But this gives you a, sort of a general idea of what is allowing people to raise tuition. So what are the results of all the spending? Well, anecdotally, we see a lot of extravagance on campus. 
Uh, this is the five-story climbing wall at the University of Houston. Uh, and University of Houston is not the only one with a climbing wall. Everybody needs a climbing wall these days. Um, in fact, the, uh, the Ohio State University is most, I think, uh, renowned for its, its climbing center that it has. Uh, here's one of my favorites. Uh, this is the Tiger Grotto at the University of Missouri. And you'll see there's somebody wearing a Hawaiian shirt serving smoothies to students. And I have to read a little of the description to you right from the University of Missouri's website. It says, ever needed a beach getaway in the middle of finals week? The Mizzou Aquatic Center's new purely recreational facility, Tiger Grotto, offers just that right here on Mizzou's campus. Amidst palm trees and other tropical flora, the sound of waterfalls and fountains give Tiger Grotto an atmosphere of complete serenity. There is a world of activity at Tiger Grotto. Its lazy river allows you to float along without any effort while you watch Zoo TV on the big screen. Additionally, the new 101-degree spa hot tub is big enough to hold you and more than 20 of your friends. In the vortex, you can swim against the current or let it simply spin you around. And don't forget, sauna and steam rooms are also available to make your tropical experience as authentic as possible. Captain Steubing, call your office. They need you at the University of Missouri. Um, and so let's go on from this one. I can't top this one, but there's a few other things. Now, this picture comes right from, from uh, Doug's publication, Inside Higher Ed. And they had a great story uh, about a month ago on all the things that universities and colleges are doing to help kids get through the stress of exam week. And one of the things that, that's fairly widespread are massages. And these are the picture that, that Inside Higher Ed up of massage stuff that they had the, at Holy Cross. There, there's, there are the massage stones and the oils and the little vials. Now, it should be noted, there was a fee for this, at least at Holy Cross, $25 or so for half an hour. But even if there's a fee, that shows that there are at least a lot of students who must have some money left over after playing the crushing cost of colleges if they can also shot out 25 bucks to get through exam stress by having a massage with hot stones and oil. Uh, finally, this is the Earhart Dining Court at Purdue University. I don't want to single out Purdue but this is sort of representative of what's really become a trend toward more gourmet food, a lot more choices. You know, the days of mystery meat that at least my parents complained about, you know, it was always green liver. I don't know why, but um, those days are over. And now you can't compete unless you're offering at least Mexican, Chinese, and Italian cuisine all at the same time. Now, there's also been a lot of excess in the outputs of higher ed. When uh, my piece ran in the, the Baltimore Sun about saying, well, maybe Maryland could find a better way to, to use money for their economy. I got a, a letter was sent to the Baltimore Sun from this college town network in Baltimore saying, well, obviously I didn't read their economic community and community impact study, which showed how many billions of dollars come to Baltimore as a result of having colleges and universities. Well, I didn't. But I did then pick up their study, and I saw this very interesting uh, slide. The orange line on top shows the Maryland occupational demand, the total demand in Maryland for these occupations. The bottom line shows what just the colleges and universities in Baltimore supply. So you can look that just Baltimore colleges supply more social workers, dentists, physicians, and lawyers than the whole state of Maryland needs. Now, to be honest, or to be truthful, the, the report also said only about 53% of students that go to these colleges stay in Maryland. Well, even if 53% of, or 47% of the people who got social worker degrees left, you would still have an excess of social workers for the entire state just coming from Baltimore. So that tells you we're producing a lot of people for jobs that aren't necessarily out there. And then, of course, we have a lot of bloat just in the aggregate. 
Uh, this is the full-time equivalent number of students per full-time equivalent executive administrator or management staff member at a public college or university. Fall 1976, you had 107, roughly, students per administrator. Fall 2005, you have about 95. It's about a 12 percent uh, drop-off. This is the remedial education. These are the remedial education numbers for public colleges and universities. All students, that means two-year and four-year students, about 34 have to take either remedial math, reading, or both. Um, in public four-year colleges, uh, in the four-year colleges, it's about 29, and two years, it's about 43. But what the ultimate point is, about a third of the people we send to college aren't ready for college. And most of those kids won't graduate. That means we have a lot of people we're pushing to college who really shouldn't be there. Then finally, we have, uh, um, George already mentioned the National Assessment of Adult Literacy. Uh, he talked about prose literacy. I, I want to look at doc, uh, document literacy, which is, well, you know, can you read a prescription? Can you read other sort of basic documents you run into uh, on a day-to-day -day basis? In 1992, the percentage of people who have a bachelor's degree and nothing higher 37% of them were proficient in this area. By 2003, only 25%. And no, it's not that all the really smart people have gone on to grad school. You have similar drop-offs among those people with graduate degrees. That means people aren't learning what we think they're learning in higher ed. So if more public money leads not to efficiency or student savings but excess, why is that? Well, none other than former Harvard University President Derek Bach laid it out. Universities share one characteristic with compulsive gamblers and exiled royalty. There's never enough money to satisfy their desires. In other words, they're like all of us. We all have stuff that we would buy or do if we had more money. But, of course, we don't get money against other people's will, which is what public funding often is for higher education. And so, of course, there's excess. In fact, this all leads us to understand Professor Richard Vedder's finding after attempting control for opportunity costs. And this is key. You can't look at higher ed as being an economic driver just by how much money they spend or spent on it. You need to see where it comes from and how it would have been used if it had stayed with those taxpayers. Well, he found that increases in the proportion of a state's income used to support higher education are associated with lower rates of economic growth. Why is that? Because ultimately letting taxpayers keep their money is better than giving it to students and schools. Taxpayers, we, you know, individuals, know better our needs and our desires, first of all, than people at the State House or in Congress or anywhere else. And we're also much more likely to use the money that is ours that we've earned efficiently than someone else's to use our money if they've just been given it, if it's just been given to them. And that's really the key. If we want to talk about economic growth, we have to see both the costs and the benefits. Nobody ever thinks of the costs, and when you look at them, it turns out that most expenditures on higher ed are net economic loss. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Barmack. I guess I am mostly confused now, which is, which is the normal condition of being for me, so that's not so unusual. Um, I certainly agree uh, with the general observation, if that is one of the points being made here, that hyperbolic claims tend to be made on behalf of greater public investment in higher ed. Is that, is that a true statement? Absolutely. Is there, is there sort of a higher so-called establishment that tends to push 
for more funding all the time, even if it's not particularly productive? Yeah, that's true too. But I'm not sure what, I mean, I guess if I were an attorney and this were a court of law, I would just sort of randomly make a motion for summary judgment because I'm not sure what the case being proven against higher ed really is here. Uh, I gather my colleagues are not about to move to Haiti where there is very little expenditures on higher ed and the citizenry are free to innovate as they see fit with highly predictable consequences. The macroeconomic theory uh, that human capital is an indispensable component of economic development really begins with not Karl Marx, but Adam Smith, and runs right through the guy whose picture I saw outside, Milton Friedman, uh, uh, all the way down to current theoretical research in the form of uh, World Bank data that indicate uh, general investment in education uh, correlates with economic development. Now, this isn't to say, I want to be very careful, this isn't to say just because you have a highly educated population, you would necessarily have good outcomes. The Soviet Union had a disproportionately highly educated population but was lacking a whole bunch of other things that are necessary. So, you know, I don't want to make a hyperbolic claim that it is a panacea to invest in education, but I find it, frankly... Uh, in need of a much more robust, much more focused and uh, and and uh, theoretically coherent um, argument, uh, if the proposition being debated here is, does public investment in higher ed uh, result in economic growth? I actually read Dr. Vetter's book, which I find him a very serious man. I thought the book was very provocative. He would have won a Nobel Prize had he actually proven what his little econometric model finds. And, and he, he's actually a solid enough scholar to kind of run down all the various theoretical objections. And then, of course, I mean, the book is not intended to be a scholarly book. It's intended to be a policy opinion piece. And then he, he asserts his opinion, which, he, which I'm happy. I mean, I think he would be a delightful person to have on a panel like this. Uh, but I don't think he makes, frankly, I, I think the f- biggest problem, theoretically, with his study is that it does not control for interstate migration. I mean, if you take the same approach and take it to uh, sovereign states, uh, you, will, you will find remarkable consistency. Now, you know, e- even there, I don't want to make too many hyperbolic claims, it could well be that affluent people buy more education. It could be that educational expenditures are a form of consumption as opposed to a form of investment. And there certainly is a component of that, and I concede that. But but to make the case that having a more industrious, uh, more capable, better trained population in the abstract does not does not tightly correlate with economic development, I think you would have to be living in a different world than the one I occupy here on Earth. So, so having said that, however, having said that, I think there is a very serious conversation to be had about whether, even if we were to assert that hitherto uncontroversial statement, whether does it follow that the policies we have, that the programs we have, that the that the funding practices we do engage in are necessarily 
adequate to, to the outcomes we seek. And, and there, of course, you're dealing with what is an inevitable outcome, which is governments are inefficient. I mean, there is no such thing as 100% efficiency in government. The act of collecting taxes and distributing it in, even in a remotely accountable way is a drag on the system to say nothing about all the judgments, which by definition are political, that result in suboptimal economic outcomes. Uh, the issue becomes, do, does the net sort of outweigh the inefficiency? And, and there, I think we could have a very targeted conversation. In fact, I recall when my first substantive lengthy conversation with Doug uh, dates back, I think it was 1997-98, when he wrote a very lengthy uh, piece on the enactment of the Clinton-era tax credits, to which I was adamantly opposed as somebody from inside the higher ed establishment, mostly because I saw them as uh, highly poorly targeted and as a very inefficient windfall to families um, because they represented where bad education policy and bad tax policy kind of overlap. So, so I concede that point. I, I think that is certainly true that we have programs that have been um, uh, damaging, uh, that I can't defend uh, because I don't think they really do what we think they do. Uh, is that true of everything? No. I don't think so. I, th I think need-based aid in general tends to work certainly today, mostly because the argument about its impact on demand is moot. I mean, the demand has expanded over the multiple decades that aid has been, whether you like it or not, a fact of life. And therefore, what you're looking at when it comes to need-based aid is really two sets of separate issues. One, I really worry about places where need-based aid represents the bulk of revenues. I think that's highly problematic. Uh, I, I, I understand the third-party argument, uh, but, I mean, it cuts both ways. Uh, it could also be that, as an advocate of markets, who are you to second-guess the desire of employers to have more credentialed people? Maybe that's wise. Maybe you're wrong, and maybe all the millions of employers who seek those credentials are right. Likewise with funding. I mean, you know, we may, we may, you may have an antipathy towards higher ed, but, you know, what about philanthropy? What, what about all of the various other stakeholders who independently, independent of the public sector for that matter, put their money where their preferences are, and overwhelmingly those preferences are in higher ed? I worry about the impact of need-based aid where the federal government is the only paying party. There you have a problem, and guess where that problem occurs most frequently? <laughs> it's in the paragon of alleged private market virtue, the for-profit sector. The not-for-profit sector, both public and independent, have many more people whose judgment is in favor of funding the enterprise, and it is, in fact, the for-profit sector that is disproportionately dependent on the public fisc, and I do have a problem with that. I also do believe that that greater indebtedness does create a path of least resistance on pricing discipline, which I candidly concede most of our aid policies really do not even factor into uh, their design. And I think that's a problem, and I think we should, we should, we should address that uh, prospectively. I'll make one other point and then sit down to see whether we can have a conversation about these things, and that is, with, uh, 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 Neil is, is a very convincing person. He knows how to 
formulate questions. So when he sent me the invitation, the second sentence really caught my attention. And his second sentence was, does it make sense to deficit spend on higher ed? And I think that's a very interesting issue. Because no matter what your misgivings are about governmental efficiency, uh, a government that is going to run a trillion-plus-dollar deficit this, this coming fiscal year, a government that is engaged in various kinds of bailouts, a government that is engaged in an intergenerational act of cost shifting, in my opinion, has a moral obligation to equip the next generation of working stiffs who are going to pay this bill to do so with incomes other than filling Slurpees at 7-Eleven. I think, I, think, I think to me, uh, in fact, the government in surplus you, you may have a different conversation because that, the surplus dollars may well be a drag on the economy in a different kind of way. But by the time you have already committed yourself to this kind of profligate spending, uh, it seems to me pennies on the dollar should be thrown at the next generation just to enable them to repay, to at least have a fighting chance. I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Um, I, I think uh, we certainly we really wanted to make this a conversation, and we'll take your questions in a minute. I guess I'd, I'd probably start by um, encouraging uh, Neil, if you want to respond a little bit to what Barmack said, as a sort of a way to maybe get a little conversation going up here. Um, I mean, particularly, I mean, uh, do you do you walk away? Um, well, why don't you respond to, to anything Barmack said that you want to respond to? Well, I think that the can everyone hear me? Okay. I think that that the ultimate point, and the one that I've been trying to drive home is, when we have conversations about higher education, especially public funding for it, invariably the focus is always on, we're going to put money into it, and look where this money is going to go. You know, we're going to send a billion dollars to Baltimore, and that's going to help the people of Baltimore, because they'll have jobs and things like that. We never look, and certainly, or at least I don't see it covered very often, what are the costs of that? We never remember that this money comes from taxpayers who would put it to some other use, perhaps. And that perhaps is important. I'm not saying that there isn't, that education isn't important, that human capital isn't important. I think they're, they're very important. But because they're important, people left to their own devices will pursue them. Historically, we've seen that before. There was major government involvement. Of course, there are lots of, you have to work in the context of the time. So no, we didn't see everybody going to university in 1850, but it wouldn't have made much sense. But we did see people pursue education. The point is that when there's public funding, that leads to great waste because you're using someone else's money. And there are costs that go with that that we don't consider. And it's not just the cost of the dollar that goes it's what would that dollar have been used for if it left, stayed with someone else? And that's really the key to looking at this economic growth argument. How would the money have been used otherwise? And that's what I think Professor Vetter was trying to start to get at is, well, what would be the effect if we left that money with taxpayers? And so I'm not trying to say that education isn't important, but I'm saying there are huge problems when it's taken by public entities from taxpayers, often against their will. And we need to at least start to consider that. And we also need to consider all the politics that are involved, which is what leads to the hyperbole, like what I demonstrated here. People saying, well, there's just been these drastic cuts to hire. It's just not true. And so there are lots of unintended consequences and lots of losses from public funding. And we need to start to look at those when we talk about economic growth. 
Neil, I guess is is it not true though that I mean the the it may be that the the problem has been the extent to which we've shifted the purposes of the public funding and gotten away maybe from the principles that under underscored some of it. I mean, I guess that without public funding of and again, there's there's funding for students, there's funding for institutions, the funding for for students originally at least was designed to to equalize or or make more equitable access to higher education i mean if you leave money in the tax let the taxpayers decide you know we've seen what there's inequitable access you you have much more trouble for low-income students to get to college without some Mm -hmm. some public support there's been a big shift away uh from um need-based aid and to other kinds of financial aid. So, so I mean, do you, do you accept the idea that there is a public purpose to uh, sort of making more equitable access to higher education? I mean, that's thing, without some public support for students, we wouldn't have equitable access to higher education. Well, see, I, I, I'm not sure that's the case. Already we see that philanthropists, charities, provide a lot of money to help people go to college, even though they're competing against massive federal aid as well as state aid. So there could be very significant crowding out. Um, so that's already a problem. And then we have to, again, consider what's always forgotten, the unintended consequences, which is, yes, initially this aid was supposed to be targeted toward the truly low income. But politics is involved with public funding. And so we saw less and less targeting to low-income kids, more and more targeting toward, toward middle-income, and even in some cases what would be considered high-income people, because that's what you need to keep political support. And then there's a good argument to be made, although it's certainly not settled and lots of people disagree, but there's a good argument to be made that the aid drives up the costs because people will charge what they can get money for. And if you continue to give someone money that's really not theirs to pay for something, the person who provides it has no incentive to cut costs or to cut prices, and the person buying it is no less or, or is no more sensitive to the price because they're getting the money paid for it. So I think we forget about very important unaccounted consequences and lots of distortions that come with public funding when we say, well, there are some people who couldn't access it and we need the public, the government, to, to help them access it. Jens, you want to get into this? Well, I thought I'd respond briefly to a, a question that Barmack raised, which I thought was an intriguing one. He, you know, here we are in the Cato uh, Hayek auditorium. He says, "We know what about maybe the free market is really making a sensible decision here with regard to the demand for credentials." Well, apropos of that, uh, several years ago, I published a paper entitled "The Overselling of Higher Education," and it started to get some commentary. And one email I got from was from a man in the financial services industry, and he said, "I think you're absolutely right." The the, uh, screening that we do makes no sense. He said that in his firm, uh, the human relations people had decided they were just not going to bother interviewing people, considering people, except for the very lowliest jobs, unless they had a college degree. Now, his argument was that this screens out a lot of potentially uh, dependable and perfectly capable workers, most of them probably older, just because they didn't have a college degree. He said most of the jobs we have here do not require high-level math or uh, any uh, great uh, level of education. They could be done by a person who had graduated from high school many years ago, and we shouldn't be screening these people out. But, he said, look, I don't have enough clout 
to overcome the decision made by the human relations people, the human resources people. He said, I could, if I could change it, I would. I think it's bad because the people we wind up hiring, we're hiring from this pool of people with college degrees. Many of them are younger. They're not all that dependable. It's a bad decision. And I think that the decision that businesses made to go in the direction of credentials was driven by uh, a Supreme Court decision back in 1971, uh, and goes by the name of Griggs versus Duke Power, where the Supreme Court said that if you do uh, aptitude testing in business, uh, you run the risk of being sued under the uh, civil rights laws if, unless you can prove that your testing only screens out people who couldn't conceivably have done the job. That made aptitude testing a, a legal minefield for employers. And it wasn't long after that we started getting a big demand for college credentials. I, I think there's a, a very good correlation between the two things happening. And if we could go back to legal ways of determining how capable a person is without looking at a college credential, which, if, after all, is not even very beneficial anymore since everyone has them practically. Uh, business could more rapidly and eagerly, uh, easily target the people who would be good employees, and maybe younger people wouldn't have to spend four, five, six years getting a college uh, bachelor's degree, some other kind of indication as to their trainability and suitability in business would be more effective and cost a lot less money. Like what, George? Mm. Like what? Yeah. Uh, several years ago... <clears throat> Our people in the uh, computer software business realized that many of the college graduates they were, they were interviewing just didn't have it. They were college graduates, but they didn't have the capabilities they were looking for. So they established out in Salt Lake City a place called North Face University, which I now think has changed its name to Newmont or something like that. It's a 28-month intensive program to teach people how to do the kind of work that Sun and Novell and uh, companies like that need people to do. I believe that we're going to see more of that kind of thing, targeted training as opposed to just kind of the generic college credential that doesn't necessarily give people much of the training that businesses really want. But so we, that's, it's happening. So we have a market. Well, it's starting. I think, I think we'll see more of it, and it'll be a very good thing because what we have right now is, is remarkably inefficient and high cost. If I may, um, a couple of just – I mean, I'm, thank Lord I'm not an economist, but I think to be an economist is to believe that incentives affect behavior. Your friend who was overruled by his HR department presumably works at a – company that is putting it itself at an enormous disadvantage, which, believing everything we tend to believe about the free market, will ultimately be extinct in favor of those places where good arguments about hiring the right kinds of people without traditionalism and without artificial barriers will, will work. So, I mean, you know, there's no crisis here. If, if, if American employers are over-relying inappropriately on credentials, as you believe, this will be self-corrected. Uh, I'm not sure what, you know, I mean, what do you want to do? Have the government issue an edict that you can't do it? The Griggs case that you mentioned also, I think, I know you're an attorney, so you know this, but the Griggs case didn't outlaw aptitude testing only. It outlawed those that had a disparate impact that couldn't be linked to job performance, and, you know, candidly, it's not a legal issue as much as it is we don't know how to do aptitude testing. If we did, the problem would be solved. 
But the fact is the, the psychometricians have been at this now for better than a century, and we still can't apply any kind of a, an assessment uh, technology that really foretells what the outcomes are going to be. So to, that is the reason we rely on credentials, because credentials are earned over time, and nothing predicts future behavior as well as past behavior. That, I mean, that's the basic logic of it. Um, so that's, that's my, I mean, I, uh, I'm, not, I'm not unsympathetic to a line of your critique, but I think you're, you're, you're sort of pushing it in a way that sort of exceeds the evidence we have. Uh, we've got a uh, microphone out in the audience. Um, ma'am in the white jacket, please. Right behind you. Uh, my name is Velma Montoya, and I'm Regent Emerita of the University of California. Um, no university president worth his salt or her salt uh, doesn't begin uh, her tenure by commissioning a study from regional economists to show the billions of dollars that um, the um, university contributes to the local economy. This is certainly going on right now in California with the president of the university on YouTube making this assertion so that they can get more money out of the budget. I think the role, uh, Professor Nasarian, of this group is to hasten the information uh, getting it out to the public uh, about um, the questionableness of um, throwing more dollars at higher education. And um, I think uh, Professor McCluskey um, uh, would be better not to try to uh, uh, teach um, the public about opportunity costs, the concept as an economist, but rather to push his uh, slide that shows that higher education in Maryland is creating all of these people who can't find jobs. And I think this is the lesson that we're learning more and more, and particularly with the recession. Parents are questioning uh, whether they should be devoting this much to um, higher education. And students who are coming out with these horrible, uh, very high um, debts are similarly questioning whether they will be able to pay them off. I do think that this kind of a conference has a very um, um, uh, public, uh, a beneficial objective. I, I concede the point. I would, I would however, just observe that, that we have historically in this country shied away from central planning and social engineering. Uh, the fact that there may be an oversupply of social workers and a shortage of nurses, if that's the case, has not historically been something that we have attempted to micromanage in this country. Uh, the assumption being that if there is an oversupply, it will result in unemployment and depressed wages, and people will alter their behavior. I think it has worked well. Uh, so, you know, I don't bemoan mismatches. I think it's, 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 it's the American experiment. Let people make their own decisions, and if, and if they are wrong, they will pay a penalty, or they used to. Now they come to the government for bailout. But, but, <laughs> but if they're wrong, presumably the, 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 the system will generally self-correct. So I don't see it as a horrible outcome that we have a 10% unemployment rate, it turns out, among PhD mathematicians. You know, they may go on and become actuaries. They may become other productive members of society. And I think the system tends to correct itself better. Uh, just holding up a statistic that there is a mismatch or an overproduction of a particular kind of major 
is not very impressive to me. I, I just tend to see that as a byproduct of the way we do things here. Well, I just wanted to say, I don't know what the word is between micro and macro, but that's the kind of managing we do. It's true that we generally don't try and dictate specifically how many of each type of graduate a college or university will produce. And I should say, often when I talk about higher ed, uh, I, I spend half my time defending it and half my time criticizing it because compared to K-12 through education, it works very well. And it's because it is, I think, uh, a lot more decentralized and much more driven by consumer choice than is higher ed. But that said, we do that between micro and macro because we do push money from taxpayers through government to universities, to schools, to particular programs to say, well, we think we need more of these. We think we'll need more nurses. We think we're going to need more social workers. So let's set up something at this university. And as you said, incentives matter. And we set up incentives that are wasteful because we say, we're going to subsidize your education, become a social worker, because we think we might need more. And the reality is that we don't know. I don't know and groups of really smart people don't often know what we're going to need five or ten years down the line. So there is a certain amount of government management, but it's not specifically you know, at each individual part. Well, and I guess uh, to me, I, I guess it, it ref- echoes what I said at the end of my little comment at the beginning. I mean, I think the question I, – I actually think we're heading for a period where more – direction is going to be necessary i mean the the i mean the, just talking about those maryland numbers for a minute we are in a those numbers showed that the state's producing that those baltimore colleges are producing half as many teachers as we need and so right now the focus is on producing more teachers which again that may not be what we need 10 years from now but that's a question of whether i mean higher ed is very slow to change and adapt um, and I think there's, it's also very hard to kill off something once it's been started. And I think there's a, I think there's a real lack of coordination and, and, uh, at the state level. And it, uh, I think it's very, I don't think there's enough hard decision-making. And I guess I would, I, I guess I think we're at a point where we're going to be asking much harder questions of individual colleges, of, of, of states looking at their entire higher education systems about whether the, the money is being invested in the right way. I don't think – I think to a large extent, I guess my view is that the, the question of whether there's too much money going or whether we should be putting a whole lot more money into higher education is is going to be moot soon because there's just not going to be more money to be to be had. I think the main question is going to be are we – are we is the money that's going there now being effectively distributed and, and, and spent? So uh, other questions in the back there, please. My name is Samar Chatterjee um, from Safe Foundation. Uh, I want to point out, um, Mr. McCluskey, you made an excellent point because this was valid probably also in 1970 when I went to school. Um, and and that's one of the reasons many of us from foreign countries were able to get into the system uh, if uh, there wasn't a shortage of people to go to uh, colleges in this country. Uh, and I always interpreted it as a way this country was expanding its facilities for the demand to come because in, in, in the class that I went to graduate study, there were 70% foreigners and only 30% who were Americans. So obviously uh, there was, a, I, I figured that America was expanding its facility that 70% facility for the demand that was to come in 80s and 90s, and it probably did come. 
and at the same time, the amount of Americans um, going into higher education now are much higher. And so the problem of capabilities of those individuals to fit into higher education is, of course, open to question more than it was in 1970. And so I, I, I think you have an interesting point, and that should be taken into consideration in making decisions how to invest in higher education. Mm-hmm. Um, just as a general, let's try to keep these, make these questions, not, not statements, so that we can uh, sort of get some back and forth going in the back there in the yellow shirt. Thank you. My name is Noam Mamis. I'm from the American Council of Trustees and Alumni. Um, higher education also offers a number of other benefits in, in civic or cultural values, but that don't offer economic pluses for the money we spend on them. How do any of your paradigms take this into account? Uh, I couldn't agree uh, with you more. You're absolutely right. And the thing is that the the core of a liberal education, as well, as I knew it back in the early 70s, uh, that has dropped out of higher education to an alarming extent. Uh, Students now don't have to take any American history, and they don't have to take a course in logic, and they don't have to learn a foreign language. Almost all of those old pillar types of things that we regard as part of being an educated person, well, they've been watered down or jettisoned, largely because a lot of students just aren't interested in that kind of stuff anymore, and the Schools want to keep their students happy. So they're not getting that component of education. What they're getting, it for the most part, is a rather um, uh, thin gruel of occupational-type training, which is what they, they think college is for these days. Uh, it would be nice if schools would start offering and, in fact, insisting upon what we used to regard as a real core education, but they've gotten away from that. I would just add that people, I'll be quick, that um, we talk about those public goods is really what you're talking about, those things that people won't be motivated for economically and they don't, they, you know, they're benefits they don't feel. Um, but one of the problems with the public good argument is people never quantify it in any way. They say it's there, but you can't nail it down. Um, and then the other part of it, I think, is, is what George was getting at, is that can you make people, can you make students take those courses that would be, you know, that would make them better citizens or make them more civically aware, volunteer more and things like that. And I don't think it can be done. People go to college generally, I think, some for the love of education, certainly, but most go and say, well, what's this going to enable me to do when I get out of college? And you could perhaps require that they go to a lot of civics courses, but you might see people just not going to college if that's what you do, and it could just end up being a waste of money because we don't know that it would make them any better citizens. Okay, I wasn't going to weigh in, but I will because I vehemently disagree with both of my colleagues here. One, the public good argument is not supposed to be some kind of ephemeral sort of do-goodest thing. There is a social rate of return, a public rate of return. The World Bank calculates it it, numerically to expenditures on education. And I think an economist who doesn't care, by the way, I studied medieval philosophy and literature. So, and both both schools still have those departments. So at least some students are are engaged in that kind of education with horrible outcomes. But be that as it may, <laughs> be that as it may, uh, I would say first of all that that the public good side of this is highly quantifiable and it is quantified all the time. And by the way, the public good side of this. 
uh, does not necessarily capture what you're interested in. Uh, what you're interested in, we know from studies that show higher civic participation, uh, less incarceration, less public benefit dependency, all of which hold true today as they did 25 years ago, even if not everybody is engaged in a classical German gymnasium type education. So, so I, I think, you know, again, these are sort of anecdotal comments that sort of wander into the realm of pseudo-proof unless you take two steps back and say, is it the case? And regardless of the fact that, yes, it's true, people don't take foreign languages, do not take mathematical logic anymore, et cetera, et cetera, there is no doubt, none. I mean, I find it stunning that I'm here defending the obvious, that, that, that the collegiate experience Thin gruel, albeit it could, it could be described as, still has a transformative effect on citizen behavior. Now, you know, maybe you wish it weren't so. Maybe I wish everybody was reading Wilder. But, you know, whatever they're doing, it still corresponds to very good non-economic outcomes. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd love to see that study. I've looked at a lot of studies on this, and very few of them ever say they can put a number on it. They'll show World you a graph. They'll show you a part. But then there's the other question about it. Mm-hmm. Almost always they say, well, the correlation is between people with X amount of education, they vote more, they do more, you know, volunteer more, things like that. Is The question is, is it because those people have gone to college or is it the people who would already be so inclined that they go to college anyway? And that's never been disentangled. I'm not sure it can be disentangled. Economists are not wise, but they're very clever sometimes. Uh, so, yes, this, is, this, can be, this, this proposition can actually be tested. It can be tested unless you believe that that human species is just different in one country than another. You can actually see societies that presumably have as many industrious, smart, intelligent, natively sort of committed types of people but lack an education system uh, behave one way, and societies that actually put some money into education, uh, those people who benefit from the education act the other way. So I would be interested to see how you say... Country X is the same as country Y. It's the same as country Z. Often, if they don't have an education system or availability of education, the country has a lot of problems that go beyond that. And is there a comparability there? And that's always – I don't know that it can be ever settled, but I think you have a big problem with that. Yes, here, please. Yeah. Uh, Wait for the microphone. My name is Stephen Hank, and I'm a tax attorney. I don't have anything to do with – higher education, but I'm interested. Um, and I want to, I have a number of points, but I wanted first to go to Mr. Nasserian's point about human capital. And I think that that all the panelists, to some extent, are, are overlooking one point, and that is that our universities have mixed what I would call education and vocational training, and they've They've essentially made it so that no one knows the difference anymore. I mean, being a law, being going to law school is vocational. It may have intellectual things about it, but it's a vocation. It's a training. Being a doctor, it you know may require all kinds of intelligence, but it is a vocation. In the Middle Ages, uh, universities started. I think, correct me if I'm wrong. They were all about intellectual education. They were not about vocational. The priest and the idle classes essentially were the only ones who got a, and I underlined it, education. And my, I'm saying that when you, my 
question is that when you say that human capital is not, you know, it's proven that that uh, that, economic, that that we build up human capital. I would say, if you break it down between vocational training and intellectual educational training, I think you're going to find that yes, vocational training builds human capital. Ed, educational training, yes, it probably builds, it has benefits, but I don't think you're going to find any kind of economic results that show and and the, that show that it's true. And just one final point, I think that the Eastern Europeans are the exact example of that. They educated all these people in PhDs, and uh, what did it do? It wasn't, as you said, I don't think it was just that they had other problems. I think it's just that their education was so focused on, on uh, you know, producing PhDs and literature and all that, that, that they, uh, they, they didn't realize that this was not vocational training. That's it. The, my question to you is, do you think you've, any of you, don't you think you've sort of missed that point in discussing it, particularly with Mr. Nasarian, who seemed to lump them all together? Well, I, you know, any conversation tends to oversimplify. I think your point is very well taken. There is a component of what goes on at some college campuses, not enough of them, according to my colleague, that can be qualified as learning for learning's sake. Uh, I'm happy to report to you that if you're worried about too much of that going on, that is not the case, uh, that, 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 that we are not, in fact, looking at 20-plus million scholars who kind of become useless to society because they're deeply into the thinking of maître Cart or some, some obscure figure, that I think by, by the definition you may, uh, you may be thinking that a fair bit of what goes on in, uh, in the classroom is vaguely vocational. By the way, you know, priesthood was a vocation and, and uh, Notre Dame was a, frankly, vocational. It was divinity and philosophy as an instrument of divinity. So, so I mean, you know, this, this, the, 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 there is some commingling of purposes here. Uh, but if you're separating the sort of economically productive from the from from edifying but not economically productive components of what happens, uh, I would tell you that the bulk of what happens on college campuses can, in fact, uh, be deemed as economically productive activity. We've got time for two. No, no, no. Sorry, we got time for two more questions. Got to move on, sir. Here. Hi, I'm Arnold King. I live in the Washington, D.C. area. Okay, my question to you guys is, have, have you all talked to uh, Kazan University Chief Financial Officer about uh, about uh, public funding, what concerns then? If, if you did, what do they think about public funding in uh, higher education? Because the way they're spending a lot of money, it's it just not connecting to the student or the, the activities that they do or the activities that the faculty do. And if, and also not connected to a career services that helps them uh, get jobs when they get out of school. Because the fact of the matter is, it used to be years ago a bachelor's degree should get you a job, but don't they end in uh, mid to late night? Now you gotta have a bachelor's degree and up to get a job. And even then, it's even then there's not a lot of jobs here because I read in the Washington Post 
about last Sunday. They said car degree is no guarantee for a job. That's my comment. Anybody want to respond to that? Well, I think the gentleman makes a very good point. Uh, most schools uh, are happy to, to take the student's money as long as he's enrolled. And once he's graduated, adios. They don't even track where these students go, what jobs, if any, they have. Um, uh, that's a failing. But I think it's a failing that's understood if you, un- if you keep in mind that Higher education, in fact, the entire education system in the United States, is mostly driven by the interests of the producers. It's not dominated by a need to serve the consumer, as in most businesses. In education, it's driven by the interests of the producers, the administrators, the professors, the teachers. They get what they want first, and and sometimes very much to the detriment of the students who are processed through, told this will be good for you, and then... When they're done, oh, well, too bad. Not working out. Uh, One more question, Uh, ma'am, there. My name is Ursula Gross, and I'm with the Business Higher Education Forum. My thinking when I hear all of this is that uh, Cato is about the individual. We're talking about numerous 18-year-old individuals. And when I – although I agree that there's an incredible uh, supply and demand uh, error going on here – I also am leery to cut off an 18-year-old from their full potential so soon. And then if you take that one step farther, uh, that 18-year-old is going to grow up and have children, and then those children, because their parents didn't go to college, are less likely to go to college themselves. And then my last, uh, and I guess my question would be, how do you account for the youth than the age element of this? And also, I do think liberal education is very strong, and I think because they're 18, you can sort of force them to do things and you can open their minds and you can really bring the arts and bring different things into their lives that you might not otherwise. But my, my question is, where does youth come into play in this? Well, I mean, I'll give the Cato answer since I'm from Cato, um, which is that I, I, I sympathize with what you're saying and that 18-year-olds, you know, they're at the beginning of their lives and we want to give them as many opportunities as possible. But we can never lose sight of the fact that if we do it through public financing, you are taking away from other people. And those people might say, take the $100 you've taken so that some other 18-year-old can go to college. They might not uh, say invest that in a stock, which would get a lot of, you know, earn a lot of money and then they could send their kids to college. Uh, and so we can never lose sight of the two-way street which is that this money comes from someone else and we could incur big losses when we take it from that person and send it to higher education or anything else. There are people who are real people who have to pay these dollars and we can't focus just on the recipients and say, well, they need it so they should get it. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate that a lot of uh, high school counselors push even rather marginal students, oh, you've got to go to college. A lot of these kids would be better off if they did something else for a couple of years, matured somewhat, and then they can decide, well, do I want further education, and if so, of what sort? Uh, Making it seem as though you've got to go to college or else, I think, is really uh, pushing them in in a bad direction. Barmack, anything, last words? I think we did them a favor if we took money out of the market and gave it to somebody else, <laughs> given where the market is. Uh, any, we have time for one more. Carolyn, you want to respond? I'm Carolyn Henrich. I work for the University of California 
also. Um, that last argument, this is the first time I've heard that, where uh, why education? Like, why do you want to choose that argument about, okay, we're going to decide where we spend this tax money in education. We don't get to choose where we spend our taxes on any issue. So I'm very curious about that. Would you advocate that we don't, we get to choose where we pay taxes? I would sign up immediately if that were the case. And, but my real question is, if you take the, take the public money out, and this is not my position, I'm asking this question. If you took the public financing of higher education out and really let the free market work, Hey, so what would happen? University of California probably would still fill all of its seats. But where's the public, you know, the, the acknowledgement that there are students who can't afford it, who would be our next brain surgeons? Or where is the decision that maybe the, uh, the money we're investing in biomedical research to solve cancer is now going to be spent on building a better video game because that's more profitable. So, you know, where do these decisions come in if you only use the business model and profit, it only cares? And if you look at for-profit schools, why without infrastructure, energy costs, faculty costs that cost a lot of public institutions, why with those, without having those costs, can they charge so much more in tuition? I mean, those are all questions that revolve around this business model. Well, I wish I had time to get to all the questions, but I'm going to get this central one. Um, I mean, on the question of whether or not I could choose where my taxes went, it would be terrific if we didn't have public entities telling us where our money's supposed to go in many, many cases. The idea of what the public should be doing Thanks. Feel, I'll feel free to clap. I thought that was a good line. Um, but there are some things that, that have to be publicly provided because they wouldn't be provided otherwise, and they're necessary because individuals don't get benefits from them. Or, you know, the, like national defense, I can free ride on that. For the most part, education, I get the benefit from it. If I go and I get a degree and I learn something, I learn a skill, I'm going to benefit from it. So people will consume education. And if we left it to individuals to choose themselves what they're going to get and how much they're going to pay for it and let individual schools decide what they're going to charge and not get subsidies, then people will make fully – they'll still consume education, but you'll get rid of all the waste that comes with it. And you'll get rid of all these unintended consequences that lead to higher prices. That's why it's so important that we have to remember – and I was – disappointed, but also somewhat happy that you said you hadn't heard the argument before, that we have to consider that this money's coming from someone else who would use it for something else. We've got to remember that in public policy, because that's half of the equation. We can't just look at who's going to benefit. Hmm? I wish it did hold to it, K-12. I w- Absolutely. And, and it all comes down to, again, people know their needs better than bureaucrats, better than politicians, and they will attend to them better. And you won't have all those people, the special interests that we all complain well, about. Uh, we have got to think in terms of there are two sides of the equation. I respect that as a political argument. I respect it as a matter of opinion. I disagree with it as based in any kind of a objective description of public good. Uh, because, go, you know, that is not what an economist would define as a public good. 
if that were so, we would not have mandatory immunization because you would make the argument that immunization is in the individual's ultimate self-interest and that it therefore immunization is a matter of private choice. It is not. Your decision not to immunize has consequences for me and therefore the public interest comes into play and, and public financing comes into play. So the definition is not, I think Neil pulled the fast one on that one. Yeah, yeah national defense is an example where you could free ride, but, but investments in education could likewise be that. Now we could get into a very heavy-duty macroeconomic argument around whether you need a certain concentration of college-educated people for innovation to happen, whether you have evidence of it here, there, and everywhere. But, but I, I just wanted to point out, it's perfectly okay to have a sort of an enlightenment perspective, somewhat quaint for my taste, but, you know, that, that says limited government, and by limited I mean ratcheted down, you know, a couple of thousand federal employees will take care of a whole continent. You can, as a matter of opinion, subscribe to that. It won't comport with modernity. It won't, it won't run this country, and it will not be workable. That's going to have to be our last word. Thank you all for coming. Thanks to our panelists.